Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy podcast. I am Michael, and I'm here today with a very special guest co-host. You probably know him already from his job of running games for the Redemption podcast, one of, if not the best, Star Wars actual play. Chris, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you. Glad to be back. So for anyone who isn't familiar with you or your work already, tell them a little bit about Redemption. Uh, We are a Star Wars actual play set during the Clone Wars. And I believe right now we are the longest active running Star Wars AP out there. We're on four, just wrapped up our fourth season, starting our fifth season probably in a couple of weeks. It is very good. Uh, it's very story focused, very role play, interesting characters, well done characters. Uh, and uh, it's very good. So if you haven't listened to it, take a listen. Uh, but we are here today specifically to talk about, um, I, I posted a couple of threads on Twitter just a few days ago on like some top do's and top don'ts uh, to be a better DM. Doesn't mean you will be a good DM or doing these things make you a great DM, but they certainly can, in my opinion, help make you better. There was some questions already floating around about what makes a good DM and that kind of thing. Uh, and these Twitter threads had a pretty good reaction. Quite a few people seemed to like uh, what I was saying, like like what these suggestions were. But I thought it might make sense to kind of condense them into what we hope will be one single episode that will cover all of these, some at higher levels than other. Uh, because I feel like this is stuff that I've said a thousand times over, but I've also said it spread over like 200 episodes of shows and it's not really convenient to dig through all of those to get these nuggets of wisdom. So it made sense, I think, to sort of condense it down into one episode if we can. But of course, we always want to take a step back and talk about why we're here, which today kind of lines up really well. Um, Because we understand that the opinions we share and the advice we give may not work at every table every time. But there is one piece of advice that we do feel is pretty universal. And Chris, what is that one piece of advice? If you're having fun, you're doing it right. That is correct, sir. So no matter what games you play, the system or edition, what rules you use, don't use, or misuse, as long as your table is having fun, then you're doing it right. So with that out of the way, we're going to jump straight into the action and talk about our top do's for being a better DM. I'm going to start, and then we'll alternate each topic we can talk a little bit about if we feel it's necessary. Uh, But for me, and this should be no surprise to anyone, have your drinks ready. My top do is have a session zero. Again, ding, take a drink. Uh, Just today, literally this morning, I was on a Facebook thread in one of the RPG groups where someone mentioned they didn't understand what a session zero was for. And I felt the same way for a very, very long time. I've been running games over 30 years at this point. Been pretty good at it the last four or five. Coincidentally, maybe right around the time I started doing session zeros. They are, in my opinion, invaluable for ensuring that you have a great start to a campaign. Now, if you play play with the same group of people and you've been playing with the same group for 30 years, do you need a session zero? Probably not. You probably already know everyone. You're probably already comfortable. You understand what people want from the game and what they expect from the game. So unless you as the DM are going to do something radically different or you're trying to like a brand new system, probably don't need it. But beyond that, I think it's so super important. So important that there's a whole other episode where we talk about just that for an hour. And I'll link that in the show notes so I don't have to cover everything here. But at a very high level, a session zero is where you make sure everyone is on the same page about what you're playing. 
because we're going to talk about D&D 5e specifically for this moment, but some people still play that game wildly different. If you, you know, listen to any actual plays or any YouTube videos of people playing, people can be playing 5e and it looks and feels like a very different game depending on what you're trying to get from it. It can be very story focused where you almost never roll dice for combat or for skill checks. It's all just how well did you role play that out? Other games can be completely or very much focused on combat and the combat can go from theater of the mind to these elaborate 3d, you know, setups where people have miniatures moving through multi-tiered actual resin cast dungeons. Those are very different experiences. They're all valid, but they're different. So a session zero is where you figure all those little things out. What system are we playing? What addition? How do we create characters? What rule books are allowed or not allowed? Or how do you handle crits? Or are they different than the way this person handled crits? Um, you know, it can be as simple as what day of the week do we play? What happens if I can't make it? Are we going to level by experience or by milestone or by something else? If I don't make it, does someone play my character? If my if I'm not there, can my character die? Uh, if I'm not there, do I get a share of loot? Um, you know, all these different things that if, if you spend any time on Reddit or Facebook forums or even Twitter and people talk about, hey, this happened in my game and I'm not sure how I feel about it, a really good session zero will solve about 90% of those problems before they become problems. So Chris, thoughts, experiences, advice for session zeros for someone who's not done them before, maybe hasn't done them more than, hey, let's get together, roll characters together. Because it's, it's definitely more than that, in my opinion. I agree. And session zero to me, that's where you and the players are making so many decisions on how your game is going to go that if you skip it, you might miss out on something very important to one of your players. You might miss out something that would be very important to the story. They might give you a good nugget in that session zero that helps you spawn an entire story arc. I've done that a lot where I'm like, oh, I understand what you're saying. And that spurs this, you know, real creative streak. And I come up with some really cool and intense story stuff. I don't skip them anymore. I've actually been doing them for as long as I've been game mastering. We just never called them session zero. We always just called it, let's get together and make characters and who's playing what and who's bringing this and who's bringing that. And we just sat down and figured it out. Lately, though, I've been thinking a lot more about how do you do a session zero for a convention game? Because that's a little more difficult because you've got a time limit that you have to get your story done in. So I've been kind of playing around with the idea of doing uh, session zero by myself, but putting myself in the player's kind of positions and thinking about how can I make my descriptions for my games very detailed so people have an idea of what they're getting into. And then when they sit down at the table, being able to do a 10-minute session zero. Yeah, and that's something I'm also very passionate about, not just because of, wait for it, a catacon, but I do ask when people sign up for a register, I should say, to run games at a catacon. And when I submit games for other conventions, I try very hard to do a very good description, not just of the adventure itself, but include things like, is this new player friendly? Is it uh, focused more on story or role play, a mixture of both? When we uh, do, um, I think I said story and role play, combat and role play. When we do combat, my, I always do theater of the mind. So I'll let people know that because some people don't like that type of combat. So if you read the description for my games, you should have a very good idea of the type of game that you're going to get. 
And if that doesn't sound like a fun game for you, then don't sign up for those particular games. Look for others. And, you know, sometimes you don't have the option. Like if you're going to a small convention, they may only have three offerings of this game that you want to play. I really want to try this new game or this edition of this game. So you maybe not have every option you can plow through, but just read the descriptions and see if the DM included some of these other descriptors. And if not, in a lot of cases, the system will allow you to contact the DM. So even if they don't give you a very good description or there's something about it you're confused about, it may not give you their email address, but it may have like a link that, hey, click here, and it will automatically send them an email so it keeps it secret. Some of them don't. Some of them just say, here's the email. But you, as a player, feel free to email the, the person and say, hey, I have some questions about your session. And if they you know aren't able to answer those properly, then maybe, again, maybe it's not a game for you. If they answer them great, then great, sign up. But I agree that convention games should again my opinion every everything here just stamp everything i say with an i in my opinion disclaimer you should absolutely take some time at the beginning of the game you are on a time crunch so no, no more than 30 minutes and even that's probably too much but set some ground rules you know do an icebreaker everybody go around the table say hi to everybody and again you get into weird social anxieties because some people don't feel comfortable you got to read the table blah 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 but absolutely i think convention games need something but for a campaign that's going to run potentially months, weeks, years, I think you need an even better foundation to make sure everyone's on that same page. Like, are we playing The Godfather or are we playing Three Stooges? Uh, for younger people, look up Three Stooges. It's funny, but not Shemp. Shemp's not funny. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, I just think it's, it's the simple things. Like, what's the tone of the game? Is it a steampunk setting? Is it high magic? Is it low magic? Uh, do I expect the NPCs to behave like this is dr drama all the time and have lots of conversations about their feelings? Or is it going to be just like people would call a beer and pretzels game where we're going to jump in, small bit of plot. Here's the bad guy or the bad girl. Here's the lost MacGuffin. We're going to go into a dungeon, kill some things, take it. Next week, we're going to do something similar. All of that's great, but it's all different. And if you don't have a good foundation, then you may go in expecting one thing, get the other, and that can cause conflicts. And especially with player types, this is probably one of the biggest ones, is I have the players create their characters together to make sure they all work together. Um, I don't particularly care about, like, we need a fighter, we need a rogue, we need a wizard, we need a cleric. I don't, I don't care. You can all be bards if you want. doesn't matter to me. But why are you together? What do you already know about each other? Why are you willing to put your life on the line for this person? Because in my games, we start out as heroes. You already know each other. You're already good people. There is none of that. How did we meet? We're in a tavern and then there's a fight and we all get together. Nothing wrong with that. That's not how I like to do it. So we go into my games with the expectation that you're already together and you are going to protect one another. Doesn't mean you always agree. It can be very X-Men-y where... This person doesn't like this person, but this person doesn't like that person. But as a together, they're kind of like a family. Totally cool, like role play. But you are going to put yourself in danger to save other people in the games that I run, and that's the type of thing I'm going to tell you in session zero. Because you're like, I don't, I don't want to do that. Cool, but maybe this isn't the game for you. I agree. Same thing that I do. I also really like to focus on the theme of the game. And what do you mean by that? Are we doing a horror theme? Are we doing more of a space opera theme? Uh, are we going to go more the comedic route? And then from there, really making sure I establish the lines and veils within the players. Uh, lately, I've been running a lot of horror games just because it's fascinating to me and I've never really run them a lot. 
But there I need to really be specific about what can I put in the game, what can we allude to, and what can we completely avoid. And that all happens in that session zero. Again, I could easily talk about this for a full hour. We've probably already said too much because that's the way I am. There are plenty of other resources out there, including the episode we did. But there are other shows that have done excellent session zeros. There's lots of blog posts. If you're not sure what the point of a session zero is, then maybe do some additional research because they are so valuable, in my opinion, that you should do them. Uh, So if you tried them and it didn't work, maybe you didn't do them correctly. I don't know, or maybe you didn't have the right expectations going in, uh, but I think they're very valuable. But we must move on because this is a top 10 list. So, Chris, what does our second do for becoming a better DM? Uh, making sure you set the scene. And what I mean by that is take the time to really describe the scene. Take the time to really put the players in that scene. Include sounds, sights, smells, uh, even fields and like what your character can physically feel, what I mean by that. And also, don't be afraid to include your players while you're setting that scene. It's not a bad idea to have them throw in, you know, other things there. I like to go, okay, you've walked into a bar. Every character ends up in a bar or a tavern. I always like to say, what is special about this bar? What does it have over the bar? Does it have a dragon's horn does it have umber hulk you know arms what is it that visually draws you into that tavern or that bar and what's it set it how does it set itself apart from other ones you're jumping ahead a little bit because we're going to talk about that specifically later i agree with you completely uh but that would be later in the list um so what do you think the key things to setting a scene like what makes a successful scene setting say that count five times fast (laughs) good luck (laughs) (laughs) Getting the players to be immersed in that scene. I think if players are going, hold on, what's over here? What's this? Is this in the room? Is it not in the room? That means you haven't really set the scene well. If they already start immediately interacting with the environment, then you know you've set the scene well. You don't have to be super descriptive. You don't have to be like, oh, the table, you know, it has three legs that are white and one that's black unless you specifically want them to look at that table leg. Yeah, the, setting the scene is kind of a, an art form, I think. And some of this goes back to like fiction writing, if you have any experience with that. Because I'm, I'm very minimalist in setting the scenes. I try to, I hit the things that I think are important, but I really want to make sure that the players have something to do. As soon as I set the scene, there should be something to do, something to interact with, some sort of impetus for action. Um, I use the example famously, well, not famously, but within my sphere, famously, <laughs> you're in a tavern, it's on fire, what do you do? I've set the scene. You know where you at, <laughs> you know where you're at, and you know there's something going on that you need to interact with. I don't know yet why the tavern's on fire. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know if you're on the first, second, or third level. We don't know if it's a first, second, or third level building. We don't know who set the fire, but you're in a tavern, it's on fire, what do you do? And I'm okay with players asking those clarifying questions like, well, where are we in the bar? Where did the fire start? Am I near a window? I will answer those as we go rather than setting that scene in its entirety before we get to the action and try to describe, you know, the minutia of how many windows, which ones are locked, which ones are close, all that kind of stuff. If you're in an existing campaign, you probably have that because you, you got there in a previous adventure or a previous session. 
But if you're just starting a campaign, you're like, hey, you're in a tavern, it's on fire, go. I think that's great. Uh, and then I'll key in. I do use that specific phrase a lot and intentionally. What do you do? As soon as I'm done setting the scene, I want to make a clear transition of control to the players. I'm done describing. I don't need to describe anything else unless you have questions. It's now your turn. What do you do? Uh, I just think that's super important to get the players. Because one of the things that used to happen to me a lot is I would finish setting the scene and then no one would do anything. Like there would just be a lot of like looking around the table, like, uh, is he done? Or I don't, I don't know what's important. I don't know where to go. Uh, there was no impetus, no call to action. It doesn't always have to be a taverns on fire, but there should be some sort of, okay, this is either what we can do. This is what we should do. Uh, we did some episodes in the past with Jim McClure and he always talked about, you don't force the players to go where you want them to. You entice them. Whatever you explain to them is the most interesting. That's what they're going to go to. Uh, so describe things in a way that makes what you want them to do or where you want them to go or who you want them to interact with as the most interesting thing in the room. If they go into a tavern, you're like, hey, it's a common tavern. You've been to a thousand of these before. But you do notice that there is a blank in the corner. Seems out of place. Guarantee your players are going to be like, that's weird. Let's go look into that. So that's a great way to set the scene. You you dangle something enticing in front of them that they want to interact with it. Coincidentally, you as the DM kind of want them to. Putting the carrot on the stick. Lead them where exactly. you want them to go. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I agree with you, too, that I my descriptions are not what I would call token-esque in detail. I will definitely describe the scene and try to get them interacting with it as soon as possible. But I also don't want to spend... A half an hour describing a bar. Your players will stop listening if you try. Yeah, and I'll stop listening to myself if I try. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I don't want to bore myself. I want to entertain myself and the players. And the scene is where you begin that entertainment. And you can use shorthand. I do this a lot. I'm, I'm a big TV and movie watcher, so sometimes I'll just say, this place is exactly like Winterfell, but it has orcs. And for most of the people that are playing a game with you, they're probably going to know what that means. And you've already done a great job of establishing what's going on because you've used shorthand. You know, and I, I think that's totally okay. You have to be careful in case not everyone does know what that means. But it's okay to say things like, this is a typical tavern, like you've been a thousand times before, except this one smells like rosemary. Or this one has an all dwarf rock band. Or whatever the whatever the weird thing about it that kind of sets it as like, okay, that's interesting. Um, so you, you don't have to describe, you know, how old it looks, what the building materials are made out of, um, every single patron at the bar. You can do some of that, but I just think say, it's a typical tavern. You've been here a thousand times before. Tells you a lot if people have played the game before. If they haven't, then maybe you need to do a little bit more. But I just, again, people probably already stopped listening to us now, which is a great <laughs> example that if you spend too much time going through the setup, the people have lost interest. And they're going to have to ask questions because they don't remember what you said earlier that was important. They, they've already kind of zoned out. Absolutely. So anything else on setting the scene? No, I think we've uh, covered that one pretty good. What's next on your list? All right. So this is a personal favorite of mine. Number three, uh, roll fewer skill checks. Uh, not less skill checks, by the way, but fewer. Made that mistake. Thankfully, the internet explained grammar to me. <laughs> uh, but the idea here is, and this is a very 5e thing. This is a very Michael thing. 
generally, when I play my games, I want the players to feel like they are good at the things they are supposed to be good at. And I absolutely agree that sometimes it's funny and enjoyable when that doesn't happen. When the wizard can't decipher the ancient runes, but the barbarian does. Or when the thief gets caught pickpocketing some nobody in the tavern or the town square. That can absolutely cause hilarity. It can cause drama. It can cause role-playing situations. It can move the story forward. So I'm not saying get rid of skill checks. But a lot of the times, I will just let my players succeed at things that I think make sense for them to be good at. So most of the time, if the thief says, hey, I want to go pickpocket some people in the town square, I'm just going to say, okay, you, you, you hit three different marks. This is how much you got out of it. Maybe I throw in a weird trinket or a minor magic item. Maybe it's just a little bit of gold. I might try to tell a story that like every one of them had this really weird coin that doesn't match the rest of the currency because that's an important or it's just an interesting thing. Um, maybe the, all they had was gold. They didn't have any platinum or any copper or silver. That's weird that the nobodies in town all have gold. Uh, none of them have any money. So those little things can help tell the story like, you know, what's going on in this town? What's going on in the city, this village? But I'm not going to have them roll every time they try to, you know, thieve from someone because that's what they do. They're a trained, you know, they're, they're competent in my world. The, the wizard is most of the time going to be able to recall some sort of ancient lore that they need to know. The fighter is going to be able to flip a table over when the orcs come in and they start shooting crossbows bolts so they can duck behind it for cover. I'm not going to have you roll for that most of the time. Because when I do have you roll for it, it becomes more interesting, more dramatic, more tense. Because, wow, this must be important because normally I don't have to roll for this. But I do here. So that means something interesting or bad or good, which again is interesting, mm-hmm. could happen. The, the caveat I will make to this is sometimes I will have players roll, but it's not to succeed or fail. It's just to kind of see how the world reacts to them. And the example I use here is let's go back to our thief who's going to you know pickpocket someone in the town square. This is the town we've never been to before. We've only been to for a little while. I might have them roll a d20 or roll their skill check to see how well they do. They're still going to succeed. But if they roll really poorly, then maybe someone else in the, in the town square noticed them. The, the mark didn't. But someone else saw them going around pickpocketing. So maybe they call the guards or maybe they're another thief that works this town as part of the guild. It's like, hey, I don't know this person. They're not supposed to be in our territory. And then later we have a scene where members of the thieves guild show up and say, hey, you're not allowed to be here. And we have a conflict. Or if they roll really well, maybe they get like 18, 19, natural 20. Maybe that same thief sees them like, wow, this person's really good. Yeah. I'm impressed by the skill they I saw on display here. And they come later to try to recruit them into the Thieves Guild. Either way, it's helped me create scenes further down the line that, that it relates directly to what the players have done. Their actions have consequences that help build the story. But it didn't determine whether or not they actually were able to get something from someone. It had a different meaning. Doesn't mean I do that every time but it's certainly something that's my toolbox that I sometimes do. So I know you right now mostly play Star Wars fantasy, the FFG version. Mm-hmm. Is there any sort of correlation that you would see that could cross over to that game or just your general DM philosophy about how often and how important skill checks are? To me, 
skill checks are there to enhance the story, not the other way around. The story should not be enhancing the skill checks or vice versa or damaging them. I use the skill checks only when I think it will impact the story. So same thing you were talking about with the thief. I might have them roll a skullduggery roll if they want to pickpocket. And it's not so much to see if you get caught, but how successful were you? And then from there, we can dictate how the story goes. I'm not going to make you roll dice to repair the ship if you're a mechanic. You can do that. That's what you do. But if you're in a firefight, now I'm going to have you roll because that's going to determine how successful you repair the ship. That, in turn, will impact the story in that scene because if the ship's taking damage, it may be more difficult for the pilot to move. But if you can fix it, now you help the pilot. So that actually enhances the story. So real similar to what you were saying. And I can see a situation where, you know, maybe you've already set up in the scene that the this planet that you're on in fantasy, you know, in Star Wars or something, something similar doesn't have a piece or part that you need. Mm -hmm. And so now I might have you roll to see, can you work around that? You know, can you MacGyver it up so that you can get the ship off the ground without that part? And that might be a pass fail. Like, sorry, you can't do it. Or, oh, you did it, but now you're going to get out, out in space. Maybe you don't quite get to the next star system before it breaks down again. Again, it's interesting, allows the players to have agency, their actions have consequences, but it's not a, are you a pilot? Are you a mechanic? Yes, you are those things. But in this particular instance, are you able to succeed or not bring all your resources? Do you have this particular technical skill? Uh, so I just, I'm just a fan in general of not rolling dice as often as possible. That's a weird kind of positive negative there. I try not to roll dice as often. Nope, still doing it wrong. I try not to roll dice unless we have to, both as a player and as a DM. I only like to bring the dice out when I think it adds to the game. And that's a personal thing. You know, again, some players may do it feel very differently. That's fine. And sometimes I want to roll dice. There, there might be a session where I have my players roll all kinds of skill checks. Uh, so it's not like a hard and fast yes, no, on, off binary situation. It's Sometimes I feel this way. Sometimes I feel that way. But there is usually some method to the madness. It's not just random. It's because I feel a certain way or I'm trying to get the players to feel a certain way. Um, so I just that's something I'm a big believer in. Try to have them roll less skill checks. Let them succeed at things more often and see how that changes the tone and tenor of your game a little bit. Absolutely. And also put yourself in the player's uh, seat for a minute. Players like to succeed at things. They don't want to fail at things. So let them do the, the small things. Let them succeed at that. Then give them obstacles that they have to overcome from there. And then let the dice kind of narrate the bigger obstacles. I shouldn't say narrate, but determine how the scene's going to go. Because you and the players are still narrating the scene. I'd say influence. Influence. Let, let the skill checks influence how the story goes from that place. Much better word. Thank you. All right, so the next one I purposefully gave you because it just sounds so dumb coming from me. The next one, I like this one. This is a huge thing I'm really a big fan of, and that is talk less. Give your players the scenes, give them control, and let them talk. Also, don't interrupt a scene that the players are involved in just because you want to talk. I love it when I sit at the table and I've got characters interacting with each other 
and all I'm doing is writing down notes. Oh, Michael's character said this. That's going to come back to haunt him later. Or, you know, so-and-so said that. Or, you know, whatever they're discussing in the scene, let it go. Even if it sounds like they're going off your, off your script, so to speak, let it go off script a little bit. Let them enjoy the scene. Uh, that will just encourage players to interact with each other more, and it will encourage more fun. The players are going to enjoy that. You don't have to be the center of attention. Let them be the center of attention. Yeah, this, this is some of a sneak preview to, a, to two different ones that are coming up in the future. Um, but the players will find their own fun if you let them. So if I'm not directing things by constantly pushing them to the next scene and just kind of letting a scene linger a little bit, see what they do, they're going to tell me what they're interested in. They're going to tell me what they want to do next because it's what their characters are talking about or maybe what the players are talking about. Um, but I'm a big believer in trying to not say as much. Again, I know it's funny coming from me. For me, I I really enjoy when players just role play without me. It's one of my favorite things. It's just like you said, just to, to listen and watch. It's almost like I'm at a small performance play. I get to just be the audience as these you know players are interacting in ways I find interesting. But they're never going to do that if I don't give them time to do that. If I'm like, okay, you guys talk to this shopkeeper. You now know that the the mine is where the children went missing. Next scene, we're at the mine. If I'm like, okay, you talk to the tavern keeper. You now know the children have gone missing. They think they're at the mine. What do you want to do? Maybe they say, let's go to the mine. Or maybe they're like, you know, I don't know if I really trust them. Or I think this is weird. Maybe we should ask someone else and get, you know, corroborating information. They might do things that surprise you. But I'm a, I'm a big fan of the you're at the kitchen table scene. You're at the fire, at the campfire scene where I will put them in a scene where there's not a lot, a lot happening and just kind of be quiet. Okay, you're all sitting around the campfire. It's been a long day. You just learned that the children were missing, but you, you, know, you can't get there till tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. What do you want to do? And I, I'm trying to get them to talk to each other. And the last thing I'll say, again, because I'm trying to tell you to talk less by talking a lot, is I will sometimes just tell them, this is a time I want you to talk to each other in character. And then just let them do it. So if, if you have players who maybe are not quite as comfortable role-playing, maybe they're newer to the game, whatever the case may be, is totally okay to say, this is a scene where I want you to talk to each other in character about what has happened over the last hour, the last couple of days. Maybe even prompt a certain player like Sarah, you know, you just saw your, you know, your captain of the guard murdered, or you just found out that your sister is actually the, the bad the bad guy or you just you know you were just learned that you were promoted to this position your character's been after how do you feel about that what would you be saying to other people about what's happened and i'll just kind of give them a little prompts but i'm still going to try my best as hard as it is for me to be quiet and let them talk to each other absolutely and i look at when players are really interacting with each other that's a successful moment for me as a game master I give myself a little gold star, so to speak, on my little notes going, yep, this led to 20 minutes of role-playing, or this led to this question. And I take a lot of joy in those moments, because to me, I feel like I was successful. I would absolutely agree. All right, number five, another one of my favorites. Uh, let the players describe successes, and in my opinion, more importantly, failures. 
this is also sometimes called narrative control or limited narrative narrative control. This is where you let players sort of dictate the truth of the world. A lot of DMs, in my experience, are uncomfortable with this, and I can totally get that for many years I was. So what I've done is kind of like as a starter step is to limit how much they how much control they have. And the most common example, probably most people listening may already be familiar, is if you're in the middle of a combat and your role and your damage takes out an enemy combatant, the DM may say, what does it look like when you take out the last ogre? Or what does it look like when you take out that goblin? And that gives the player full freedom to really describe it however they want. Because the mechanics have already dictated that goblin is dead. It's no longer in the fight. So no matter how you describe it, whether you talk about, you know, you slice its head off and it goes flying and blood squirts, or you make it as silly as you punch them with the pommel of your sword and they stumble backwards five steps and then tumble down into a well, it doesn't matter. They're out of the combat. And unless someone just goes like crazy off the rails and, you know, talks about how some sort of divine angel appears and smites their enemies, there's not a lot they can do to really kind of mess up the world. And it's a lot of fun for many players. I've met players who don't want to do that. There are those out there. Totally cool. Don't ask them to do this. But you might be surprised, particularly at newer players, at how their eyes will light up. I've, I've literally seen that at like convention games where I talk to someone who's fairly new and say, all right, you just stuck out that ogre. How do you see that in your head? What does it look like? And they get to describe this moment of triumph for them. And it gets to be as super cool as they want it to be. And it just... It's amazing feeling letting that person, seeing that person do that and how it can just, you know, lift, know, lift their spirits, but just like get them engaged in the game in a way that they haven't been yet. Absolutely love that. But for me, I actually find it's more valuable for like campaign play or with experienced players to ask them to describe their failures. I like to have fun at the table. I like to joke. It's one of the ways you get inspiration at my table is if you make me laugh, you get inspiration and it happens a lot because I like to laugh and I'm, I'm an easy mark for a joke. It doesn't have to be great. I'll laugh at it. But if your player or your character, I'm sorry, fails at something and I'm describing what that failure looks like, I might go for a cheap laugh. You know, just whatever the most silly thing is in that moment, that's why you failed. But to the player, they might view failure much differently. And it might, it might reveal some of their character to you and maybe to them and to the table that can, as we talked earlier, can influence the story. So, the example I'll use, and then I'll let you chime in, is let's say we have a barbarian who needs to climb over a, like a large wall. It's not like a garden wall. It's like a large wall. And this is something, for whatever reason, I decided to have them roll. Normally, I wouldn't, but this is a situation where I want to see how, how the rolls play out. And the barbarian character fails their roll. Now, no matter what we describe, the barbarian is still going to be on this side of the wall at the end of their turn. But how we describe why they're still there can vary drastically. Me as the DM, I would probably say you climb halfway up, you lose your footing, you fall, you land on your keister, and you're still on your butt when the orcs catch up with you at the end of their turn. But if we turn that over to the player, they may come up with something like, well, maybe I just didn't pick a good route. You know, my character's good at climbing, but I was in such a hurry that I didn't take the time to look at the wall and go, oh, okay, I need to go here, here, and here. So I got halfway up, and there was just nowhere to go. I just physically couldn't go any higher. So I had to drop back down 
and be on this side of the wall. End of the day, still on this side of the wall, but those are two vastly different situations, one of which tells us a lot about that barbarian character, that they are impulsive, that they don't always think ahead. And that's something that we can then play off of in the future in other situations and say, you know, we've, we've talked before, your barbarian's very impulsive. What would they do in this situation, X, Y, Z? And you can kind of help push them into these interesting situations that are ripe for drama, ripe for role play. Good time to start a combat. <laughs> if there hasn't been one and people are wanting one, mm-hmm. you know, maybe your impulsive barbarian's getting tired of all this talking and thinks that they can get the answer a little quicker. So I am absolutely huge fan of asking the player, what does that look like to you? Successes and failures. Have you had any experience with this, Chris? Do you do anything like that? A lot. Especially with the Star Wars Fantasy Flight game system. They have advantages and threats, and it's written in the rules that the players get to describe their advantages and their triumphs. Rules is written, the game master is supposed to kind of narrate the the threats and despairs, but I let the players do that. Part of the reason I let the players do that is whenever they fail, they generally pick a punishment worse than what I would have come up with. Absolutely. They put themselves at more of a disadvantage in the scene than I would have come up with, and they're more entertained by it. They're also not as upset with the outcome if you let them describe the failure. I have as a game master described failures, and people be like, oh, really? That sucks. I didn't want to fall off my horse. Okay, well, how did you fail then? Oh, my lance got stuck in him. Okay, well, now you don't have your weapon. I mean, if you fell off the horse, you'd still have your weapon. But now you don't have your weapon, but you're still on your horse. One result, you're happy. To me, the other result was a little bit more mechanical as far as keeping you in the scene. So I really learned to just let players describe their own failures. Successes, that's the one where a while, or for a while, I had a hard time letting that one go. Because players, I was afraid, would abuse it. You know, oh, I hit the orc. Okay, what's it look like? I slash across his eyes, and now he's blind. Okay, we only did one point of damage, so he's not blind. I like to find that the mechanics kind of balance that out once you let it go. That's where critical hits come in. That's where critical hit charts can help you if you're into that. I know Fantasy Flight Games has got a lot of critical hit charts that help narrate the scene and then let the players describe the successes. Once I realized there's rules for that, I relaxed a whole lot. I wasn't so worried about letting them describe their successes. And most players are going to try to abuse it a little bit, and you just kind of smile and, well, maybe not blind, but maybe it knocked him over backwards. How's that? And most people just go, okay. Have you experienced something similar to that? Uh, Yes, I I definitely see there is a sort of a negotiation that sometimes happens, particularly if I'm the one who starts it and I describe what happens and they may go like, you know, I really, that's not what I see in my head. Okay, let's, you know, let's very quickly, let's work this out, make sure both of us are happy. Absolutely. I've seen the same, the same thing where people are like, oh, well, then I poke their eye out or I knock their weapon out of their hand. And sometimes I'll be like, you know, with what you roll, that's not quite an effect that we can go for. Can we do something else? You know, maybe you just bang it really hard. I'll give them disadvantage on their next attack against you because they have to recover their weapon, but it doesn't go flying off a cliff. Or I might say, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. It happens. Uh, Again, it depends on the scene, what I'm trying to accomplish, what I'm feeling, all these other factors that are, are, are kind of worked in. But sometimes you have to go back and forth and someone does go off the rails and they describe things in a way that not only does it, not that it doesn't make sense, but just that it, it breaks some other reality of the game. 
like as a crazy example, I played in a game where there were no drow, like they didn't exist in my world. And if a player said, you know, hey, a drow pops up and shoots the guy for me, clearly that's not okay. That's not going to happen. Uh, Again, that's a very extreme, simple example to prove the point. So sometimes there is negotiation back and forth. The other thing I want to say very, very, very importantly is even if they don't do a great job, act like they did. Absolutely. Encouraged it. You know, if you have a player who's who's new and every time you're like, what does that look like? And they're like, I cut his head off. Oh, my God, that's awesome. I can, I can see that in my head. It's so cool. Maybe it wasn't the coolest thing ever, but you don't want to shut them down. The worst thing you can do is go, oh, no, no, this is what happens. And then you override what they said with what you wanted because you think it's cooler. Maybe it is cooler. You've been doing this longer. Maybe you got a broader, you know, knowledge or experience or imagination. Do not do that. Let them be the narrator and just go, that is so cool. That is awesome. Thank you for sharing that with me. I mean, you can really lay it in. Uh, and I've used, I've saw this example before that that domestics uh, thing that you and I attended mm-hmm. several years ago before we even knew each other. Yeah. Uh, I played in a game with Darcy, Darcy Ross, who's now a community manager with Monty Cook Games. She's an excellent DM. I've played with her multiple times. She's awesome. And I saw her do that. It was the first time it clicked with me where there was a person in the game who was a little bit shy and reserved, probably hadn't played a lot. And Darcy was going around the table saying, what does that look like? What does that look like? What does that look like? And I remembered very clearly, she asked this young lady once what something looked like. And the lady gave a very basic, and I'm being a jerk right now, but it, was, it wasn't a great description. And Darcy acted like it blew her freaking mind. She's like, oh my God, that is so cool. And I had a revelation in my head. I was like, wait, that that really wasn't cool. And then I'm like, oh, and I totally just clicked for me because I saw this young lady light up and was so excited that she had said something that made the table better, made Darcy, you know, light up herself. And that's why I, I learned that hardcore right then and there, ask people and then always act like it's great, you know. You can always if it's something crazy, after, maybe after the table you talk about it on the side, but in the moment say that is so cool. I'd love that. And then move on. And they're going to do more of it. They're going to get better at it. Uh, but it's, I'm a big fan of doing that. Oh, absolutely. I, I also think that one of the obstacles some game masters run into, and I run into this a lot, I'm writing down hit points and tracking damage. You kill the bad guy. Okay, he's dead. My brain's already shifted to the next person. You have to tell yourself, stop, ask them what it looks like, let them describe it, then move on to the next person. Don't get caught up in writing on your sheet the mechanics of the scene. Keep in the narrative scene. And, and again, this is our top 10 list. I, could, I probably could do a top 25 list. that We don't really talk a lot about combat, but just to throw it here, sometimes that's why at the end of the combat, it's like if it's decided, like there's only two goblins left, all the heroes are, are up, I'm not going to have us fight the two goblins. I'm just going to say you can kill them or capture them. Like I'll just, okay, you're there because... It keeps me from having to, to do that. Like while the scene's getting boring and I'm still tracking hit points, you can just absolutely like, all right, you guys have won. Let's move on. All right. So number six. Pay attention to what the players are doing and they're going to tell you what they want to do. A couple of keys with this. First, I'm a big fan of nonverbal communication. Pay attention to what they're physically doing and that'll tell you what excites them. I'm sure we've all got that player that picks up their phone on a regular basis and is checking email and checking, you know, whatever they're playing, you know, whatever game they're playing. That person's not excited at that moment. Whatever direction you're going, it's kind of boring them. 
you got to find a way to bring them back into the, the excitement, bring them back into the scene. At the same time with nonverbal, if you describe something and you see players sitting upright and they're leaning forward more and they're kind of ignoring their actual physical paper character sheet, you know you're engaging them. Keep that excitement going. Keep them going in that direction. The other part of it is just literally what they're saying. Pay attention to it. If people start going, eh, I guess we could go that way, they're not excited about that thread. Feel free to go in a different direction. More than once, I have literally looked at my players and went, well, I plan for you to go this way. You don't seem excited. Then I just set my notebook down. I grab out new paper and say, so where are we going next then? And we just rewrite the whole scene right there. Um, so really, just pay attention to them. I know you do it really well, Michael. I've seen you do it at, at different games that I've played with you. What are some of the keys you do? Well, one thing that I'd like to do, which is related, is I will throw out a lot of random details that seem important that I am just making up on the in the fly. I have no idea what these mean, but I just think they're interesting, and I like to see what people latch on to. So I, I've used the example that, that I just threw out some weird detail when they, they go into a town or a village that a lot of the in, a lot of the NPCs are talking about this other person who just came through town. They were here a couple of days ago. They were interesting for some reason, and now they're gone. It's just a little bit of flair, just a bit of color to the scene. I want the players to go check out the old abandoned temple because that's what the story, like that's what I created. There's a dungeon underneath, there's crypts, there's like some kind of undead thing happening, and that's where I want them to go. And as I'm trying to lay those tracks, the players keep talking about that. Like, why is that? Why is everybody talking about that person? Like, what's so interesting about them? Like, why? That just seems weird. And if they become more interested in this NPC that I've made up that I don't know who they are or why they're important, I'm not going to force them back to the temple. I'm going to be like, okay, now we're clearly, that's more interesting. So I'm going to lean into that. And it could be as simple as when they get to the temple, surprise, surprise, that person's there too. Or there's evidence that like their wagon is outside the temple. So now I've combined what I had already planned with what they found <clears throat> more interesting. Or I may just abandon it completely. I still have that dungeon written down or planned out. I can move it somewhere else. Uh, now, instead of being the old temple, maybe it's the old witch's hut that they get to by following this NPC who was around town for some reason. Um, I'm a big fan of saying the players will tell you what they find fun because it's what they are doing when you're not making them do something else. Uh, same thing like the role play scenes. Like when they're role playing and if they really, they like to role play a lot about interpersonal issues, then that's what they find fun. If they, if they, they want to relive the action combats, then that's what they find fun. And there's a meta level, like you said, where players lean forward when they're excited. If, if you're getting ready to talk about the combat, for example, and everyone leans forward, all right, they like combat. Maybe I need to make sure I'm doing enough combat to satisfy them. If, um, you know, we get into like a tense role play scene and everybody leans forward and everyone starts to have fun and really get into character. Great. They like role playing. We need to do more of that. But from a narrative level, if they're spending all their time doing this thing, whatever that thing is, when you expected them to go here, then maybe your plot isn't attaching to them. That goes back to session zero or changing expectations. But absolutely, if you don't force them to go somewhere, they will go where they think will be the most fun. Find a way to combine those. Absolutely. I could go on about nonverbal communication, but I really start to bore people. But that's a fascination <laughs> I have. So, no, 
I agree. And that's one of the things I've, I've said on this podcast many times. Reading the table is a super important DM skill, but I have no idea how to teach that. I'm sure there are people who can, but I, like, I can do it. At least I think I can. But I have no idea how to tell you to do it other than to tell you to do it. Like, hey, read the table. But other than like if someone's like super obviously like leaning forward and smiling, like it's usually more subtle than that. Uh, it could be just like when it's their turn, they know what they want to do. They're ready for their turn. If they're always like, okay, wait, what's going on? Like what has happened? Well, I thought that one was dead. Clearly they weren't paying attention. But again, reading the table is super important. You're going to have to find your own resources because I don't know how to teach that. Do you have any resources that you would show people or send people to? Uh, you could. There's tons of things you can read online, things about microexpressions and nonverbal communication. The biggest key, don't let the barriers, the physical barriers that are in front of you, prevent you from seeing the players. So if you like to use a GM screen, try to get a short one so you can still see over it. Don't focus so much on your notes that you're not looking up and paying attention to the players. And make eye contact. Eye contact is huge. It establishes trust. It establishes interest. If you're not constantly looking up and making eye contact with your players, you're going to miss the nonverbal cues. You're going to miss what excites them. So don't get stuck staring down at the table. Spend more time looking at your players. Don't stare at them because that could be borderline <laughs> awkward. And we're already awkward enough. But just check in with them physically. And, uh, and spoilers for early seasons of redemption. If you're trying to record your game and your DM is behind a DM screen that's covering their mouth, yeah. you won't hear that audio. Yep. If you want to record, <laughs> make sure the microphone's in front of you. Yep. All right. Uh, number seven, huge fan of this one. This is something I used to do terribly and I learned my lessons and I've, I've changed it. There are some possibilities of exploitation by the players. So there's a balancing act, but don't make the cool fun stuff harder to do than the regular stuff. So hopefully this one won't take very long. So my example is if I'm a fighter and I'm trying to kill the ogre and I only need to roll a 12 or higher on my D20 to hit the ogre. And then I get to do like 2D8 damage. And then I get to add these bonuses. I can do like 15 points of damage, minimum 30 maximum, super cool. But if I want to kick the ogre into the fire pit, I have to roll two skill checks and then roll my attack with disadvantage. And the maximum damage I'm going to do if they go in the fire is like 1d8. I guess I'll hit it with my sword then. I want my players to do those things. I want them to interact with the scenery, kick people into fire pits, throw them off of cliffs, try to entangle them with ropes, drop chandeliers on their head, kick barrels of whiskey that come rolling down the hallway. I want them to do those things. If I make them harder to do and less effective, then I stab it with my sword. I am teaching my players not to do that and to only stick them with the sword because it's silly not to. Part of that, there's a couple things here. One is obviously don't make it harder, but two, don't punish them terribly if it doesn't work. If they try to kick the ogre into the fire pit and it doesn't work for whatever reason, and then the ogre kills their character, then they probably will stop trying to do that because they have learned through evolution that kicking people into fire gets characters killed. And I'm saying you can't kill the character. I'm just using that as an example, but don't make the punishment severe for failing. If you try to roll the, you know, the whiskey barrels down the hallway, like Donkey Kong, 
and you let the NPCs just jump over them like there was no problem, then that was not fun. Sometimes maybe they're fighting somebody who's a skilled assassin or like a metahuman, and then having them jump up the barrels is cool, but only because of this situation. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I also encourage players to be more descriptive in how they're doing the cool stuff. So I give them bonuses with, I give them bonuses based on their description. So if, you know, again, pulling the wagon out, if you just say you're just attaching a rope to the front and then you're going to pull, all right, roll your straight up roll. But if you're like, oh, I've got a rope that I wrap around a tree, that I then run to a pulley, then I have the wizard cast this spell, okay, give yourself plus four because you've taken the time to describe the scene and you've got mechanical reasons on how it's going to help. Yeah, I, I think this is something I, I see more often with newer DMs and something I absolutely used to do. Like my players would want to try to do something cool and I'd be like, well, but if you're going to jump on the railing and then, you know, ski down it on a, on a shield like Legolas and Lord of the Rings and then shoot an orc in the face, well, I, I guess that's skill checks then so i guess you got to jump on the shield as a jump check and then you got to keep your balance that's a dexterity check and then you're trying to shoot somebody when you're moving so that should be harder so i guess i give you a penalty and there's an argument to be made that that is the correct call because someone is trying to do something overly complex it's, it's multiple steps maybe even more than a character should actually do in a in a turn order the way the game is written but i'm going to break that and just say okay that sounds awesome Roll an attack. I might say roll with disadvantage, and that just takes care of everything. If we're playing 5e, if you still hit with disadvantage, you do all the super cool stuff. Um, but I'm not going to make it that much harder or less effective if they're doing something that I, I want to see happen. I, I want to have a smile on my face. When you do that thing, I'm not going to make it overly hard. The problem that can come in is if you have players that exploit this. And they try to do something like devastating. Like, well, if I kick them off the thousand foot cliff, I know I win. It's like a, you know, like a cheat in a video game where if you yeah. get into a certain corner, the bad guy can't hit you or something. That's not fun anymore. Like if you're beating the system, and I think some of that goes back to ding, 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 session zero and setting expectations and just letting the player know this is going to work because it's so awesome. But don't expect that this is now an I win button for every time you get into a combat. It's fun in this this situation. It's going to work if you roll well enough on your attack or whatever. But this isn't a I can always do this every time. I'm not giving you a free ability or a feat that maybe someone else has to get through the character class. But it's going to work this time because it's fun. And I think some of that's kind of expectations that are assumed. But you may need to spell that out for a player who's like, oh, great. I now know how to kill everybody because I'm always just going to do this. That's not fun, so we're not going to say yes next time. I agree. It also encourages creativity. No, yeah, and if you're like me and you like to throw out random details about the scenery, that's because I want you to use the scenery. I want, and uh, I'm going to jump nine that I'm getting to in a minute. I'm going to talk more about that, but absolutely, I I want you to describe things more than I swing my sword. And if I swing my sword is the most optimal strategy you have then it's silly for me to think you're going to do something else. So don't make it the most optimal strategy every time. There's always exceptions. There's always situational uh, uh, differences you have to take into account. But if we're setting up a big battle scene in a tavern that's got three levels and it's got railings and there's a chandelier and there's a big fire pit, then yes, I absolutely expect people to be on different levels, swinging on chandeliers and throwing people in the fire pits. 
All right, moving on. Uh, number eight. Number eight. Steal from the player's ideas. This is one of my favorite things to do. The players are going to tell you cool ideas. Steal them. Put them in the story. How do you do that? Listen to them. Ask them questions. I'm not afraid to talk to the players in between games and go, hey, do you like this thread? And they're like, eh, I was kind of thinking maybe we could introduce this. Done. It's now in the game. Uh, also, pay attention during the game to what they're saying, in character especially. Like I said earlier, you know, if Michael's playing in the game and he happens to mention, you know, oh yeah, you know, Dad wasn't a very nice guy. I'm going to write that down. Somewhere in the story, Dad's coming back to say hi to Michael again, and now you're going to have a, a scene with that. Anyways, how do you steal from the player's ideas? <laughs> so I do this very aggressively. Uh, I'm a big believer in this. Now, if it's a con game, it's going to be a little harder because I have a limited amount of time, but especially in campaigns. Um, some examples I've had where uh, you know the players are in a town square and they see an attack or an assassination they're probably going to chase after the culprit. That is very common. And, you know, in my mind, I don't want them to catch the culprit because that's not what this is about. But they roll well enough that they should catch them. So I'll have them turn down a blind alley. When the players get there, they're gone. You know, in my mind, I just want them out of the game. I just want them gone because I didn't want that scene to happen because it wasn't relevant. But the players are probably like, oh, there must be a secret passage here. All right, there is now. There wasn't. There was just a... I just, you know, DM Fiat, I just had them get away. But you're right. It it does make sense there's a secret passage here. Don't know where the secret passage goes yet. But, yeah, there's probably a secret passage. Let's roll for it. Uh, the example I used in the, the tweet thread was one of the players might say, and I've not this exact example, but I've had this happen, where a player will just like casually say, I mean, we know it's the blacksmith, right? It has to be the blacksmith. They're the, they're the one behind all this. Has to be the blacksmith. And it wasn't the blacksmith, but it is now. When I originally wrote the adventure, it was supposed to be the mayor or the, the priest or the thieves guild, whatever. Nope, it is now the blacksmith. Now, there's a couple things here is sometimes when you set up a twist, M. Night Shyamalan style, you want it to pay off at the very end where everyone's like, oh my God, I can't believe I never saw that coming. Hard to do. Even M. Knot's only really done it once. If it's if it works, it's very successful. It's very rewarding. Great. I'm not saying don't go for that. But more often than not, it's not going to work out that well. So it's okay some of the time to just change the story so it makes sense for what they think is happening. Because as long as you never, ever tell the players that you changed it because of what they said, it makes them feel really smart. It makes them happy. It makes them feel good. And like when you get to that moment and you reveal that it was the blacksmith, they're like, I knew it. I absolutely knew it. Oh my God, I can't believe it. You're right. And and the last thing I'll say, the, the cheat is that sometimes I try to make my stories very complicated. I will lay out a set of clues that don't line up where I think they do. And I've thrown something in here offhandedly that kind of like, oh wait, I did say the blacksmith was left-handed. Or I did say the assassin, I'm sorry, was left-handed. And I happened to say the blacksmith was left-handed. So kind of screwed myself there. So sometimes they'll be they'll lay out the clues like either in character or just as players like, well, we learned this and we learned this and we learned this. It has to be the blacksmith. And I'm like, in my head, like, oh my, yeah, you're right. It does have to be the blacksmith. Okay, now it's the blacksmith. 
it's okay to do that. Don't feel like you've ruined anything because they figured out your mystery earlier. Be happy that they are so engaged with your story that they are looking for and finding these details and these clues that keep them invested and reward them for that. Absolutely. The other nice thing is sometimes players like to go off the Game Master's rails. Stealing some ideas from them sometimes takes them off of the player's rails because the players will try to dictate what direction that the uh, story is going. If you steal something from them that they weren't paying attention to, kind of throws them off a little bit, which if you have players that really like that, it can be a ton of fun. But again, session zero, talk to your players to see if they enjoy that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it can go too far. Um, You know, it can feel like patronizing. And to me, it's, it's, it's very important that the players not realize this is happening. Um, You know, some people, it's kind of like fudging roles, which we're not talking about on these lists. Uh, But some people, if they found out a DM did that, would destroy their the sanctity of the game. And other players are like, I don't care. You know, as long as we had fun. So it's something to understand. And if you think your players would be very disappointed that the mystery really didn't have an answer and you just kind of made it up at the end because it made sense, sort of, and it doesn't all quite line up, then maybe don't do that. Maybe spend more time and lay out the clues properly and, you know, take the time it takes to prep for that. Uh, but I found a lot, my games a lot are like movies, particularly Marvel movies, which I love that at the end of a Marvel movie, I'm usually very happy. I'm very excited. I can't wait to see the next one. But if I spend a lot of time thinking about that movie, I'm going to find stuff that does not make sense and things where <laughs> characters did things that they only did those because they needed them to for the next scene or for the next plot point. So I'm not saying you can't inv- investigate your art forms, but maybe you don't need to so much. As long as everyone had fun when they were leaving and they come back next week, okay. doesn't matter if maybe two weeks later they're like, you know, that one time you said that thing, that really doesn't make sense. You're like, you're right. But we're now past that. We had a good time. We already solved that mystery. We're on to the next one. All right. You ready to move on to number nine? Yes. Yes, I am. Uh, Number nine is almost always say yes. This is a very loaded tip there's a lot that could go into that and there's the people will tell you always say yes don't always say yes there are absolutely times when saying no is appropriate but for the most part always say yes and what i mean for this specifically is if a player asks a question such as is there a chandelier in this room the answer is yes unless you have an amazingly good reason why there's not there is if they ask if there is a rock laying around, yes, unless there's a really good reason not to, there is. Is there anyone in the tavern who looks like they're already drunk? Yes. Is there someone in the tavern gambling? Yes. Does the mayor have any siblings? Yes. Because the player is asking that question because they have an idea to do something super cool or super fun or very interesting. And if you say, oh, no, no, they don't. You're just shutting down their idea, in my mind, without unless there's a good reason to, then say yes. Because if they say, is there a chandelier in the room, you're probably going to get some chandelier swinging, which is what we're all here for. If there's a rock nearby, they probably have some cool idea they want to do with that rock. Let them try. Doesn't mean they're going to win. Doesn't mean it's an I win button. Like I, Because I have a rock, I've now destroyed this entire adventure or encounter. But they've got an idea of something they want to do. 
within whatever reasons you can say yes and then see what they do. Hopefully it's super cool. It's super fun. You're going to make it easy to do. They roll well and you all get to go, oh my God, I can't believe that just happened, which is an amazing time at the table rather than, is there a rock nearby? No, there's no, there's no rocks nearby. I guess I'll hit it with my sword then. Yep. I like to use, instead of saying no, I like to go, ooh, it would be tough because, or, oh, how about instead this? So, for example, the chandelier. You're in a dungeon underground, you're in the dragon's lair, and somebody goes, ooh, is there a chandelier? It'd be tough for a dragon that likes to kind of fly around to have a chandelier. How about this instead? And then let them kind of still determine something new to the scene. It still gives them the creative freedom to do it. It just doesn't, you're not saying the word no. You're still excited about what they want to do. That's kind of the little trick I use. I don't know if you use any tricks like that. Well, again, as I said, like sometimes you do say no. Like if they're in a weird, like they're in the middle of a dungeon and they ask if there's a water fountain on the wall. No, there's no water fountain on the wall in the middle of this dungeon. Uh, But I might say like, what's your idea? What are you thinking? And if they go, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I was hoping that maybe if there was enough water, I could do X, Y, or Z. I mean, well, you guys have water skins. You could use that. Or, you know, uh, maybe two rooms down the road, I might put in a, a fountain or barrels of stored water so they can then do the thing they wanted to do anyways. Uh, so it's okay. I, I'm totally okay with somewhat breaking the, the narrative wall and saying like, what, what are you wanting to do? What are you trying to accomplish? And once I know what their plan is, I might be able to say, well, there isn't a chandelier, but there is this, you know, and like you said, it may not work exactly. It's going to be a little harder, maybe a little more complicated, may not have the same effect that you wanted, but I'm not saying no, uh, it might be not yet. Or what's they say? Yes, but like, yeah, there is a chandelier, but it's 500 feet in the air because this is a dragon's cave and they fly around. So you can't get to it. Uh, but it's a really cool looking chandelier because it's in a dragon's cave. So I try not to say no unless I really, really, really need to. And there are times where you do really, really need, need to. So if anyone tells you never say no, I disagree with that. I just say I rarely will say no. And not until I've investigated why first and then go, okay, this is what you're trying to do. Let's work this out so that you can try. But sometimes it's just, no. Anything to add with that? I agree with you on that. It's tough to do because you want to make the players happy and you want to see them excited. Sometimes you just have to kind of compromise with them. And if saying no to begin with is part of the compromise, then say no, just do it in a nice way. Mm-hmm. try to encourage them along a different line and keep things going and this is a spoiler for some of our do list sometimes dms want to say no because or sorry our don't list sometimes dms don't want to say yes because they're afraid it's going to bypass an encounter or or make an encounter so much easier than they were expecting we're going to talk about why that's not a problem all right so here's number 10 this is our last of our i'm gonna say the top 10 because there's probably more but 10 do things that will help you be a better DM. And what is our number 10? Uh, Resourcing the table and the players that are there. I do this a lot because I don't want to spend hours digging into the mechanics of the game system. I want to spend hours writing out a good story. So I don't want to have to think about every scenario and every possible rule that may come into that scenario. 
I just want to write a good story and a good scene and let the players do what they want in that scene. So if a player says, oh, I want to run, slide between his legs as I'm sliding, stab him in the thigh, and then that slows me down enough that I can spin, you know, spin my knife out of his leg and pop up behind him. I don't want to have to think about what all checks are involved, but if there's somebody at the table who loves the rules, I'm going to go ahead and say, all right, how many checks do we need to make? What rules do we need to do? And let them explain it. Let them take control of that for a moment. That's just kind of a thing for me. What do you like to do when it comes to resourcing the table? Well, let's be honest. They would stab them in the groin. They're not going to stab them in the thigh in this situation. Uh, fair enough. I would too. Yeah. But that's just yeah, me. Absolutely. Uh, so there, there are definitely components. I agree with you. If you have a rules resource, someone that just knows the rules and you need to lean on them, go back to the days of 3.0 and 3.5. No one understood grappling. So if anybody <laughs> was willing to read how grappling works and they knew absolutely how, do, how does grappling work. Uh, you do have to be careful because you might have someone who thinks they know the rules but doesn't. Uh, or particularly maybe at a con game, they might selectively remember the rules that help them and other people. It happens but it's something that you can certainly do. Uh, we talked about this very much on this podcast, the early episodes, specifically when Evan, we first started, he didn't know any of the rules for running a game and we would run the rules for him. He would just run the story as a DM. And when it came time to interact with a rule, he would just ask us, okay, well, how do you do that? And we would tell him and the game was fun. It was fine. DM doesn't have to know the rules better than anyone. Someone at the table needs to know the rules. For me, I also do this. We kind of alluded to earlier, when I will say, what's in this tavern? What is this, What is interesting about the tavern? What's the name of this tavern? Uh, someone may ask, you know, what's the name of the barkeep? I say, I don't know. What is the name of the barkeep? And I will let the players come up with those details. Uh, I might say, you know, what's something, what's some rumor you've heard about this village? And let them come up with anything. And the, the secret for me here is if they come up with something that's just crazy, you can always just say that was not true. It was a rumor. It wasn't actual. So, you know, if, if the rumor they come up with like, oh, I've heard there's actually secretly um, an, an evil cult that's, you know, running things. Well, one, that may be cooler than the idea I had. So, yeah, now there is a cult. Let's do that. That sounds fun. But it may be like, oh, no. But you know, it could be fun for them to keep like poking and prodding thinking that they're uncovering this cult and it's just not there. And be like, it was just a rumor. You know, it could be the rumor that there's uh, uh, an abandoned gold mine nearby. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. But I ask my players all the time those questions like, who do you know in the temple that you could go speak to? Who do you know that might know uh, how to decipher these runes if no one in the party figured out that kind of thing? I, I absolutely love doing that. I admit I'm an experienced DM. I'm also comfortable with taking these wild things and running with them and making them make sense. Not everyone is, so you might want to be cautious about it kind of like going back to like describing successes and failures you're you're limiting their influence in the world because if you're afraid they're going to say something that just throws you off your rocker and you don't want to do uh, but i encourage you to try in limited situations what's the name of this tavern there's not much they can say that's going to destroy your adventure if they name the tavern something weird or goofy or just you know like doesn't fit the tone of the game but then maybe that becomes a plot point why is this ta this tavern called the Betty Lou Who? I don't know, but there's probably a story there. Maybe we'll figure it out and, you know, maybe it'll become a throwaway. No one cares. Or maybe it becomes important. Like, 
there's some big mystery about Betty Lou and who she was. I don't know. Um, but I'm okay with taking that and running with it. And I encourage DMs to try to start working toward that. Cause I will say as a DM, I get more fun playing the game when I have less control because it kind of lets me be a player too. I don't know all the answers and I get to react to things that are said and I get to create and, and riff off things that are created at the table in front of me. And it makes it more fun for me to run the game when I don't have everything planned out. For sure. I think for me, I like to really resource the players for story when they go completely off the rails. A good example, doing the Star Wars show with Redemption, we're on an ice planet, they decide to go to the bar, even though I've pointed a different direction. They go to the bar, I go, great, what's the bar look like? And I had them actually describe the bar and really build the scene, and I just kind of interacted with that scene. It was neat because it kind of put me in that role as a player for that moment of how am I going to now interact with the scene. But the advantage is I'm not limited to just one PC. I can now interact in the scene you're setting, but I get to make up any character I want to play in this scene now. So that's a lot of fun. It can be a little tough if you're not used to it and you're not comfortable with improvising, but I say play around with it. Let go. Have a good time with it. Lose your inhibitions on that one. Awesome. I think that's what you were trying to say. I think so. I, th I think we're on the, the same same page on that one. Uh, it's almost like we had a session zero. Ding. Almost. <laughs> All right. Uh, so that is our, you know, I don't want to say top 10 because I have so many more, but we're going to limit it to 10 now. If you, if you want to hear more of our other ones, go listen to all of our episodes because there's more in there. But I do think these are 10 very valuable techniques or thoughts or skills or exercises that will help any DM that's not already doing these things become a better DM or work towards being a better DM. Some of these will work for you. Some of them will not. Some of them you'll try and they won't work. But if you keep trying them, they will. And eventually, it's like learning a skill. Maybe it's rough at, to start, but uh, once you get comfortable with them, I think you you have the potential to have a, a almost like an epiphany of, oh, I, I now see how this game can be run differently. And hopefully, because our goal here is to make it better for you as the DM, which in turn makes it better for your players. All right, so we're going to move on to our top 10 don't list. These are going to go a little faster because I like to stay positive, and these are things I'm telling you not to do, so we're going to probably not expound on them quite as much, but they are things that I do find valuable. So, Chris, are you ready for our don't list? Yes, sir. Excellent. So you were yes, not no. Um, so number one here, don't run if you're not up to it. I'm a big believer that no game is better than a bad game. Because not having a game sometimes will keep your players, like, they're disappointed. They wanted to play, but they didn't get to. So they still want to play next time. But if you play a game and it doesn't go great, then maybe, like, oh, that really wasn't fun. This is like our third game in a row. It wasn't great. They might start to lose interest. I'm not trying to put a ton of pressure on the DM. Things happen. Sometimes you have, to, you know, if you're, I have anxiety. I've been running the game over 30 years. I still get anxiety before every single game. Before we start, I'm nervous. So, you know, if that's if that's you, then you, you're eventually going to have to kind of work past that in whatever way works for you. I'm talking about if you're sick, if you just don't feel good, if you had a bad day at work, uh, maybe you're having issues with spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, kids, work, family, social, whatever. If you're just not up for running the game, 
it's totally okay to cancel the game. Try to give your players as much notice as possible because no one likes to be driving to your house at five and find out the game at six is canceled. But I'm a big believer, don't run that game if you're not up to it. The end. Anything, Chris? I think you covered that one pretty well. Not a lot to that one. Uh, so number two, uh, don't forget your group's lines and veils. Just because you think something's cool, make sure you pay attention to what other people, what their comfort zone is. Don't throw something in there that's going to make them feel uncomfortable. Uh, one of the big keys on that, I think, is uh, torture in games. Just because you might think it's cool to torture a character doesn't mean somebody else at the table does. So don't do it. I mean, or, it's the classic 24 of the TV show where you want to be Jack Bauer and you got the bad guy strapped to a chair and you're hooking up battery cables to their extremities. Maybe you enjoy watching it on TV, but maybe somebody at your table doesn't. Um, hopefully session zero, ding, 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 you set up these lines and veils so you kind of have these guidelines. So don't violate them later. If you realize that you are starting to, call that timeout and say, okay, never mind, let's roll that back. Yep. I agree. Just keep those in mind. I use note cards. I just write down what the lines are and what the veils are, and those always sit right up in front of me. That way I know what not to do. Excellent. Uh, number three, I'm a big believer in this one. Do not dictate what a PC does or feels. There are people who believe differently. That's totally okay. This is a Michael thing that I don't want to tell you your character is scared. I want to describe this scene, and I may even say this is a situation where almost anybody would be frightened. But I still let the player determine if they are, in fact, frightened or not. Now, there are magical abilities within certain games or mechanical effects, compulsion spells that can allow me as the DM to say, no, you are, in fact, going to do this. But I, I try not to do those anyways. I don't like those as a player. I don't like that when it happens to me. It's not fun. So I try not to use them anyways. But there are times when it is appropriate. Uh, we've talked several times on some of the older episodes, one of the worst campaigns I ever played in. It was the reason why I stopped playing at that person's house and started my own group. And that led to the podcast, yada, yada, yada. Um, one of the players was playing a druid and we were going through a forest and the DM said, off in the distance, you see fire. You think there might be like a forest fire that has started. And we were on a time sensitive mission. And so we're like, well, that sucks, but we don't have time to deal with it. We're going to keep going. And the DM looked at the player playing the Druid and said, you are a Druid. You would not allow a forest fire to go unchecked here. You, you have to get involved. And the player's like, I don't think so. I disagree. And the DM says, your character's frozen. And like literally just made that character freeze in place because they weren't quote unquote playing their character correctly for the entire rest of that session. That player could do nothing. They couldn't interact. They couldn't move. Absolutely nothing one of the worst moments of any game ever that's an extreme example but don't dictate well you're so angry you would attack the magistrate now no i'm really mad i agree with you but i'm going to decide if i'm mad enough to actually do that or not does that make sense yes i run into this with moral dilemmas paladins or since i run a lot of star wars jedi what i like to do is go okay what do you think your character is feeling right now? Let them describe it. And then I go, okay, if you don't mind afterwards, I'd like to just discuss because I think a Jedi might've gone a different direction, but this is your character. 
let's finish the scene. And then afterwards, we can have that cool debate about morals within the Jedi Council or in the Paladin world, whatever kind of system you like to do. So I like to do that after the game, not during the game. But that's a, we're going to sit down and have a beverage and maybe a little to eat kind of conversation. And and people are complex and they have idiosyncrasies and conflicts and flaws. And, you know, maybe the player goes, yeah, you're right. In the moment, I wanted to do this thing because I thought it'd be more fun. But you're right. I probably shouldn't have done that. So now you can have that scene later where they start to regret their actions and you can have a redemption arc or some sort of, you know, in, in-game uh, reaction to that. Or it could be the other way around where they convince you and you're like, yeah, you're right. You know, like, I kind of thought this is how the scene would go when it didn't go that way. I was kind of frustrated. But no, you're right. Your reaction was totally legit and and you move on with it uh but i'm just a big believer don't tell them how they act and feel and certainly don't punish them if they don't act and feel the way you want the only exception would be or one of the exception exceptions session zero ding take a drink if you set up like this is going to be a game where i want there to be moral dilemmas like that's what we're going into there's going to be times where your character is going to be put in these positions and I expect you to X, Y, or Z. And everyone knows like, okay, this is the type of game we're playing where we're supposed to be afraid. Like this is like a Call of Cthulhu type game. You're supposed to be unease. You're supposed to be frightened. You're supposed to be hesitant to go into locked rooms and locked doors. And you have a player that's completely not playing to that tone. And they're just like kicking doors open and cracking wise and, you know, laughing at the face of the elder God. They're not playing to the agreed upon tone. I wouldn't do it in the moment, like you said, but that might be an after the game situation or a timeout situation and be like, all right, I I thought we were all on the same page. This is supposed to be a creepy haunted house scenario and you're playing this, like what's going on? And that leads to a bunch of other conversations, uh, but still don't in the middle of the game say you're frozen because your character doesn't do what I think your character should do. Moving on. Number four. Uh, Don't fix out of game problems with in-game solutions. I've really run into this only a handful of times, and the one that really sticks out to me, I was gaming with friends, and two of them were in a relationship, and they got into a fight, so the game master decided that their two characters were going to fall in love, because he thought that if their characters fell in love, it would help their relationship out of the game. Well, That was a terrible idea. Absolutely it was, because then their characters ended up fighting, and it just led to a big scene of them fighting there, and I was like, oh my gosh, what is going on here? It created a lot of awkwardness for everybody, and we actually ended up only playing for half the time that day, and then the rest of the time playing a board game because the couple left, and it was horribly awkward. So don't try to do something like that. Yes. The, the the common example that I most I most often see is like I just said before somebody's playing out of tone. You're you're supposed to be playing a type of game. Everyone agreed to play a certain type of game, and then one player is just not playing in a way that makes sense. Uh, murder hoboing comes to mind. Everyone's agreed to play heroes, and then one player is stealing from every NPC. They're killing all the NPCs. They're just being an anarchist and just trying to create chaos in the game. I don't believe this is a Michael thing. I do not believe punishing that character by having like an in-game magistrate or law enforcement or, or paladin come and fight or kit, you know, capture or put in jail that character is going to solve those problems. I don't believe they are going to learn the error of their ways because in my mind, that's a player problem. If you kill their character, 
their next character is just going to be worse. Like, I don't think they're going to go, okay, I guess I was playing wrong. They're going to escalate. Like, oh, you thought that last character was bad? Wait till you meet the new one. My opinion, my experience. So I would have an out-of-game conversation and say, listen, we, you know, we said I had session zero. We all talked about how we were going to play the game. Are you not having fun? Do you want to revisit that session zero? Do you want to maybe start a new campaign? Maybe that player just doesn't play in this game anymore. And that's a hard conversation to have, but maybe it's a, this campaign you don't play because this isn't the type of game you want to play in, but everyone else does. Uh, and there, there's, at the end of the day, there has to be some sort of compromise. Uh, either that player changes their behavior, the whole group decides to play a different way or a different game, or that player just doesn't play in this particular campaign because they are making it less fun for everyone. All right, so number five, don't plan solutions, prep situations. Big believer in this one. Uh, I ran into those problems a lot as a younger DM where I would create a situation with what I thought the correct way to get out was, whether it was like a puzzle room, a trap, an encounter against a superior foe. But if this player uses this particular spell and this player uses this particular ability, they can offset that disadvantage and they'll win because invariably that player forgets they have that spell or the player with the ability misses that session. And now you have to completely redo the whole encounter or you have a possibility of a TPK, which is not the player's fault whatsoever. I take this to the very much extreme. I do not suggest everyone do this. I intentionally do not know or care what my player's abilities are. I don't ask them what spells they have prepared that day. I don't ask them what new feats or features or mechanics they have when they level up. I create an encounter that I think makes sense for the campaign and I expect them to figure out how to beat it. But I'm also a very loosey-goosey DM who will fudge roles and change things behind the, the scene. So I am able to do that comfortably. You may not, so I'm not saying go that crazy. But the, the goal is do not prep how they will solve that the three ogres are coming into town. Your job is to create an interesting scene with three ogres coming into town and then let the players figure out how they want to deal with it. I agree. And I do similar situations and similar concepts as what you just described. I like to give them obstacles, and part of the fun for me is to see how they overcome those obstacles. How do they overcome the ogre that's running down the street, heading towards the well with the poison in his hand? Are they going to trip him? Are they going to capture him? Are they going to throw a net? What are they going to do? But that's fun for me. I like to experience what their creativity is going to be. Yep. And if, you, if you've already planned what you think is the solution, you might be reticent to let their crazy ideas work because that's not how it was supposed to work and that's just not fun for me all right number six uh don't be afraid to call a timeout i do this whenever the players go completely off the rails okay timeout guys we're so far from where i was originally planning let me take a few moments here and reorganize my thoughts so i can get us back on a clear more concise story otherwise i find myself kind of floundering and um, uh, mm, a lot. And I don't want to do that. I would rather just say time out. Everybody will get some pizza, take a lunch break. Let's take 10 minutes for me to collect my thoughts. I don't know if you do that. No, I completely agree. I, I sometimes will try to hide this. Like if I'm in a convention game, I may call like a bathroom break, bio break at that moment, uh, in a campaign, I might, uh, be like, Oh, hold on and flip through my notes, even though I'm really not looking, I'm 
trying to recycle. Uh, but it's totally okay to just say, uh, this isn't how I thought tonight was going. Uh, give me a couple minutes. Let me recalibrate here, you know, figure out what's going on and let me figure it out and then start again. And it's, it's totally okay to say, can we just do that scene over? Like I was not prepared that you would talk to the king tonight and I really didn't have what they were going to do set. And I don't think I made good choices as the king NPC. I don't think that's how that scene would have went. Can we just redo that? Sometimes it feels kind of weird. Again, some players are reticent to do that. They, you know, DMs want to be able to organically steer the game back to where it's supposed to be. And I'm using supposed in quotes because that's, you know, philosophies on whether there is a supposed to be or not. But if you didn't expect them to talk to the king tonight and they decide to talk to the king and you like role play it weird or you don't like you mess up like the king was supposed to give them this information and you forgot, it's okay to be like, I messed that up. Can we do a take two? I wouldn't do that a lot, but if it needs to be done, you're all friends. You're all at least socially contracted to like a con game to have fun together. And if it's going to make the game worse not to do it, then it would be silly not to do it. Yep. Uh, the other time I do timeout before and after a very emotional scene. So if I think I'm really going to hit a character hard, I'm going to take a timeout beforehand and say, all right, Michael, you know we're going to go meet your long-lost father. You know it's going to be a little emotional. Are you ready? Just to check in with the player and make sure they're ready. Maybe that's not the day to do it. Maybe you say to me, you know what? I'm not feeling it today. Perfect. Let's go ahead and do something else for the rest of the time. We'll pick this up next time. Just check in with your player. I also do it after pretty emotional scenes just to kind of bring the, the tensions down a little bit, get people back to, you know, a little more base. Usually that's when I'll try to make sure somebody cracks a few jokes to kind of break some of that emotional tension. Best example is in Redemption when Tazi met his father for the first time and there was the, well, reconnected with his father for the first time. I had to look at Michael and, you know, in character say, I love you, son. We made eye contact and both of us had a little tear come out of our eye. As soon as that was done, I was like, we need to take a break because the next scene, not going to be that emotional. Let us both reset and get to the next scene. Perfect. But don't be afraid to do that. You know, check in with your players. You should be doing that all the time, good and bad, just checking in with your players. But uh, number seven is don't be afraid to let your PCs win easily sometimes. Uh, if I spend a lot of time creating an encounter that I think is going to be super cool and it's got all these environmental effects and on round three, there's going to be like a lava spurt and then they're going to have to get on these rafts and they're sailing down the lava and they're fighting and they somehow bypass that encounter with one deception roll at the beginning. That can be kind of a bummer. And sometimes you might be like, uh, okay, it doesn't work. Should work mechanically, narratively, but I plan this whole encounter out and my gosh, we're going to play it. Sometimes you do that. Sometimes you're like, okay, that's really cool. You've just beat my entire encounter with this one roll. How awesome is that? How cool do all the players feel that they have been able to do that? Let them have those easy, excuse me, let them have those easy victories sometimes. It makes them feel cool. Every battle shouldn't be to the death. Every battle shouldn't be mechanically precisely designed so that they can only win if they get at least 60% good rolls. 
some should. Some should be very complicated and complex and involved. And others can be like, okay, cool. You just round one. You all ganged up and took out the ogre chieftain. All the other ogres are going to run away now. Um, the example I used in the thread, because I'm a big fan of the three ogre. I, I, three ogres is just my go-to. I've created three ogres. They're coming into town. They're going to destroy something. The players have to deal with it. They decide to dress up like a opposite sex ogre, maybe Voltron style. So they're all on each other's shoulders and stuff and throw a big cloak over them. And they seduce the ogre or bribe the ogre or trick the ogres. And they defeat that encounter with just a couple of deception rolls and some funny role play. Okay, cool. I thought this was going to be this big involved scene, but it's not. But you know what's probably going to happen in like two more sessions when they're now trying to sneak into some place like the, the manse of the mayor? Maybe the ogres show up then because they realize, wait, we were tricked. You never met us at this place or the thing you said was somewhere wasn't there. Now we're mad. Now we're a lot less likely to be tricked. And we're going to cause all kinds of chaos and confusion when you were trying to be sneaky. Dramatic uh, uh, escalation. Uh, So you can still take what you thought was going to happen and just move it around. I thought I was going to have this cool ogre battle scene this session. But now it's going to be over here. And in fact, it's even going to be better because I've got all these other elements that are now tied into it. And, you know, typical movie stuff, it turns out the ogres attacking is actually beneficial because it allows allows them to be able to do the thing they wanted to do undercover. But it's going to feel and seem like worse chaos at the time. I think that would be so much fun. There's two times I do this. Uh, First, when the player says, oh, I want to do X, Y, and Z. Should I roll this check? Usually I'm going to say, yes, DC is pretty easy. Uh, That might be more example of the thief's going to go up and pick the lock on the door. Okay, I wasn't going to have you roll because you're not under any pressure, but you want to roll the die. I see you've picked up the die, so I'm going to let you roll and just make it an easy, let you win so you feel like you've accomplished something. And some people like to make a lot of dice rolls. I don't. That's just my personal uh, thought. The other time I'm apt to just let the PCs win easily is when it really benefits the story. If it's going to progress the story in a major direction, I'm going to make that a little easier than I normally would just to keep the story progressing. Uh, Otherwise, I'm going to set what I think is an appropriate difficulty for it. And that's uh, variable depending on your expectations, how far you are into the session, what you've got planned next, pacing, there can be all kinds of reasons why you want to make something easier or harder in this particular situation. Absolutely. Uh, number eight, don't be afraid to tell your players your strengths and weaknesses. I'm a big fan of this. I'm not good at remembering names. So I tell people up front, I apologize. I might forget your character's name and I might even forget your name. So please, here's a card write your name and your character name so I can look down at it and then look back up. Nothing personal. I just have an issue with names. I can remember faces. I can remember faces of people I met three, four years ago and tell you the conversation we had, but for some reason just can't remember their name. Just how my brain is wired. So don't be afraid to tell your players what your, you know, how your brain is wired. I don't know if there's a whole lot more we have to go into that one. Well, I guess what I would add there is from like a uh, from the in the game standpoint goes back to again ding session zero expectations. Um, 
if you play my games, you're going to know there may not be any combat. If it's like a convention game, very likely, very possible, I should say, no combat at all. If you're in a campaign of mine at home, we might have a combat every other session. When we do have combats, they're going to be quick and dirty. Probably only have one or two opponents. It's all going to be theater of the mind. That's what I'm good at. That's a strength of mine. I am not good at designing very complex encounters that require strong tactics to overcome. So if you want to play in a game that has those things, my game is probably not one you're going to have fun in. So I want to be upfront and tell you, I'm just not good at it. It's not that I don't want to do it. It's just that I'm not good at it. I'm better at this other thing. I lean into my strengths. It also, it helps me tell the types of stories I like to tell as a, as a DM where you might fight against one guard who catches you as you're sneaking through the courtyard rather than five lava monsters that come up in the temple and all the lavas, the example I was using earlier. Like I might do one of those every four or five months, just like a huge set piece battle because I'm not good at it. I don't find them very fun. It's not what I like to do. So I don't put them in very often. If for someone else, it's role playing situations and maybe it's, uh, I don't know, give me mechanics. Again, if you're not really competent with the mechanics and say, look, I think I can run a good game. I think it'll have fun, but I don't know how grapple works. So I need someone at the table to have those rules ready. It's okay to say that up front. It's setting expectations. I agree. All right. Number nine, don't take the game too seriously. This will seem somewhat counterintuitive to some of the things I've said earlier about a player playing out of tone to everyone else. As much as I like to run serious games, quote unquote serious games, that have a lot of heavy role play, a lot of emotional weight, I also really like to make jokes. I like to laugh. I give out inspiration mostly from people making me laugh. Any time that I get to spend three or four hours with my friends around a table telling jokes and I get to laugh a lot, that is a good night in my book. That is a, a night I want to happen again. So sometimes your godfather game turns into Three Stooges halfway through session three. And sometimes you just got to be like, you know what? Let's just get this out. We're going to do it tonight. You know, we'll, re we'll retcon the whole thing or this will be a fever dream or whatever. But I'm never going to be mad if someone makes me laugh. No matter how serious I'm trying to be, if you crack me up and I start guffawing with laughter, that's a good time. I'm going to be okay with it. This is a problem for me because sometimes I do get very serious about the games and I do have to remind myself, relax, it's okay. A uh, good example of this is uh, Catacon. Uh, two years ago, I was running Feng Shui and had a moment where I'm telling you 90% of the plot in this uh, little moment with one player and he's looking through the pool of water and he's talking to the elf on the other side. And one of the other players jumps in the water because he thought it was funny. And I was like, as I a just, game master, I, I was laughed. like, yeah, I was like, really? You just kind of took the scene I was doing and just threw it out the window. That's what ran through my head. What I said was, okay, well, you just interrupted the spell. So now you're staring at this guy's character interact with each other. And that took me a moment to just kind of recollect my thoughts and remind myself to just relax. That was funny to him. He enjoyed it. Let him have his, his moment. It's going to happen sometimes and just, you know, roll with it as best you can. Enjoy it. Life is short. 
All right. And our number 10, don't list. Don't have unreasonable expectations. It's a game. Enjoy it. Set your expectations just to have fun. Uh, yeah. I don't struggle with this one because that's my philosophy. I don't set wild expectations on my games. I might set goals for my players, but I do that away from the table. And then we just work towards whatever they want to work towards. My expectation is to have a good time and tell a great story. And I hope that's what everybody else sets for their expectations. Because then you'll succeed. But what are your thoughts on it? Hopefully, anyways. Uh, So this came about from a recent Facebook uh, interaction I had where someone had posted that they were disappointed that their players didn't remember the name of a crucial NPC. And when it came time to meet with them, no one could remember their name and no one had written down the name. Yes, that's kind of frustrating as the DM when you're like, it's really important that you remember that, uh, you know, Balthazar is your contact with the Thieves Guild. And then three sessions later, you're in the tavern at the meet, meet time and no one can remember who to ask for. It can be kind of funny. You know, maybe that's part of the game is that, that you have them go through, is it Bulbasaur? Is it, you know, Brackety Brack? And it just turns into like a laugh right scene where everybody's having a good time. But if you're trying to have a serious game, no one would actually forget that. The point of this to me is like I get to play at most once a week, usually for three hours by the time everyone shows up and we finish eating and we talk and chat a little bit and share, you know, recent movie, you know, reviews or whatever. We're lucky to get three hours of actual game time a week. And then you have things like work keeps one of us over. We have a vacation. We have a sick kid. Things happen. So even though only like six hours may have passed in the game world. It could be four months later that we're having this meeting. I don't care that my players don't remember Balthazar. I'm going to tell them you're looking for Balthazar. I'm just going to tell them information. I don't punish them when they don't remember clues that I laid out earlier that, again, the blacksmith was left-handed and they completely forget. Sometimes I might give them hints. I might give them a roll to see if they remember, but ultimately I'm just going to tell them what they need to know because they, as competent adventurers in this world, are not going to forget that unless we're playing a comedy type game where it's funny that they don't. And that's what I mean. You're, you're, you're adults. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're kids. Maybe you're young adults. You have lives outside of the game. You probably don't get to play as often as you want. Maybe someone takes notes. Great. If they do, reward them. Give them an advantage. Give them some sort of token. Give them some sort of bonus item for doing that effort. But I'm not going to punish players for not doing that. Me neither. I don't expect them to remember anything I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, And for me, I actually go into it expecting the players to forget NPCs because usually I have so many, I expect them just to forget names or get them confused. Again, I set the expectation of let's tell a great story and have fun. I don't really set much more than that. You can always lean into this, uh, the soap opera trope where you're like, and here you see Mayor Trevar, who you might remember, their brother, Balthazar, you know, is secretly the leader of the Thieves Guild. You know, you make it as direct and silly as you want or whatever, but it's just a big, big thing for me. I don't ever want my players to feel like, oh, 
we're in trouble because we don't remember something that happened four months ago. Okay. So that is our top 10. Again, not top 10. That is 10 of our um, do's and 10 of our don'ts. There's certainly many, many more, but we think all of these are valuable. Hopefully anyone listening who got through this whole thing agrees. Uh, we would love to hear in comments on Twitter, on the Facebook page, on comments on the actual post on our website, um, examples of when this went well for you, maybe examples when it didn't, some any additional do's and don'ts that you might add that we maybe we can create like a master list somewhere. Uh, but as always, thank you for listening. So, Chris, before we go, anything you want to plug, anything you want to help people to go check out where they can find you? Uh, check out Akatacon. We have a Woo-hoo. cool Kickstarter going soon. Well, probably going as this episode comes out. I'm going to try to turn this around this week, so it'll be this week, hopefully. Awesome. So check out the Kickstarter. We are going to fund this year and have another great convention in November. Uh, in Dayton, Ohio, November 8th, 9th, and 10th. I know I'll be there. I never miss it. I know you'll be there because you can't miss it. And so <laughs> a ton of other great game masters and great people. Uh, if you want to reach out to me, easiest way to get me is on Twitter. It's Burlu underscore Chris on the Twitter. So I was going to plug a catacon. You've already done that for me. So I will just say, check out the show notes for the links. If you're interested in a catacon. And if not, you can find me at the RPG Academy, pretty much everywhere. You might search. If you find something under the RPG Academy, probably me, Chris, thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, Anyone listening, hopefully you enjoyed the episode and got something from it. Uh, And until next time, remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. All right. So go ahead and hit stop on the old recording devices.